tap into your most original thinking, organize your ideas, and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. And often when we think of big data, we get overwhelmed or we say, oh my gosh, you know, AI, big brother. But how could big data be a key to unlocking your creativity? And I guess even more so, how could a data-centric corporate culture be a key to unlocking the creativity and the talents of an entire organization. These are provocative subjects that we'll be exploring today with our guest, Jay Goldman. Jay, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Mark. Jay's a co-founder and CEO of Sensei Labs. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of The Decoded Company. Jay, you've talked a lot about how big data can really help unlock creativity and unlock our talents. How, how do we take this old notion of data centricity and turn it on its head? I think big data has got itself a bad name because there's been so many stories in the press and you know, press always likes a sensational story. So you get a, a story about where it's maybe been abused or you get algorithms gone bad kind of stories where people were making decisions based on algorithms that maybe were biased in their origin or things like that. Our perspective is that data is really just data. It is neither good or bad, and it really is dependent on how people make use of it to see what the outcome of that is going to be. And we've built six very successful companies using data as a part of that equation in how you can engineer an ecosystem where you are using data and technology to help bring your people into an environment in which they can do the best work of their career, to attract the top talent in your industry, and to build a workplace that really leads to the kind of passionate engagement that people get up in the morning and love their jobs. They stay at companies longer, they put in more targeted effort, and you get to better outcomes. And so it's possible to do all of that with big data if you're smart about the way that you make use of it and the tools that you employ in using data to get to those kinds of great places. Well, that's a good point. And as we were discussing that, my career is built in advertising and coming up on the creative side, you can imagine eavesdropping in our meetings. We were usually, hey, let's don't let the data bog us down. You know, let's don't let the facts slow us down. Right. <laughs> but so give us some insight into how you're defining big data. Let's lift the hood up a little bit. What, what sort of facts or insights, probably more importantly, can we get? from this kind of big data? I would think about it this way. If you're an e-commerce company and you run an e-commerce website, maybe it's built on Shopify or it's an Amazon storefront or whatever, you are going to have a tremendous amount of data about your customers. And you'll know all kinds of things about them before they've even landed on your site, thanks to the ad campaigns that you're running that are bringing people in. And through analytics, you can track which campaigns are more successful and which ones are driving better conversions. Then you can track the activity of those within your site and you know exactly what they looked at and for how long and what they added to their shopping cart and whether they checked out and whether offering them a discount made a difference. All of that kind of data is very well understood if you run an e-commerce website. In today's organizations, we run just as sophisticated electronic digital tools that can give us that same level of data and profile of our own team members, but we don't mine that data for the purpose of more deeply engaging them in their work, 
to present them with challenges that they haven't otherwise seen. All the kinds of things that we can get to if we turn that data lens inward instead of applying it outside. So when we wrote Decoded, the question that we asked is uh, sort of a, a, a surprisingly deceptive question. It, the, the question is, what happens if you know more about your talent than you knew than you know about your customers? And most organizations, that's not true. They don't know more about their team than they know about their customers, but they spend a huge amount of time, energy, and money understanding their customers. You actually get to a far greater outcome with better leverage if you spend a fraction of that amount understanding your people, what drives them, what engages them, where they get to feeling, uh, to, to quote Dan Pink, mastery, autonomy, and purpose, to the kinds of levers that will get a better outcome out of the better output a longer loyalty, whatever metric it is that you want to measure as success for your team. If you spend a fraction of the time and energy that you could spend understanding your customers on just understanding your team. But for most organizations, it's a complete black hole. That's so interesting. Uh, turning that lens inside as you described. I think a lot of people think in the digital, uh, I guess, marketplace, a lot of our customer experience data is all about cookies and breadcrumbs and you know, following the customer step-by-step uh, -step through their process. I don't think that's what you're necessarily meaning uh, about internal, like we're not gonna be looking at what you click at work, but rather you know, understanding the people. Maybe tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so think about it this way. It if you look at the great accomplishments of human achievement, whether it's professional athletes who have put in an incredible performance and maybe won a gold medal or uh, you know World Cup or whatever it is that they in their particular sport, or you look at the great business leaders who have accomplished a huge amount and built massive companies, there is almost always a coach behind the scenes. That coach is watching their performance. It's giving the coach is giving them coaching tips on how to get to a better performance and that level of coaching is part of what unlocks that incredible performance. But the challenge is it's not very scalable. It's just not viable in a business to have a coach for every single one of your people or even to share coaches among them. It's just not a scalable solution. So when we were thinking about how you might decode an organization, we realized that you already have lots of sensors in place today in the organization, and it's pretty easy to augment it with additional ones that can look at the data about what's happening in the organization and get to some pretty interesting insights about it. So I'll give you an example, actually very early in our own history in building systems like this, we replaced email with a ticket system. So if I needed to work on something rather than sending you an email, I might send you a task in the, in the task tracking system and then you might work on it and send it to somebody else. And the advantage is we get away from all the problems we know with email where you get CC'd into a middle of a thread and you have no idea why you're in this thread and you have to scroll back and try to figure that out. And you're not even sure if you got this because you need to care about it or because somebody else was just covering their ass and everybody's Every, talking about an attachment that was like, right. I mean, we've all had this, not just once, right? It's not yeah. like, oh, I remember that one time this happened. It's like, I remember that one time this happened in the last three hours. And so email is a good communication tool, but it's really not a great coordination tool. And so when you get into moving away from email into something like a task system, you get to a much higher degree of accountability, first of all, because there's an owner of the task. There's no owner of an email thread. So you have a piece of data right now that says who's responsible for this thing getting done. And already you're ahead of where you were with the email. But if you step back and look at 
a whole bunch of tasks moving through an organization, you can see pretty quickly the data about the set of tasks actually represents how work gets done in this business. And so we can start to look at that set of data and we can understand a bunch of things. Like, for example, we might understand that there's a particular task that you and I are working on together, but it's just not getting done. And we're just bouncing the task back and forth between us. There might be very good reasons for that. Maybe we're collaborating and we need to go back and forth a bunch. But more often than not, when you get past a certain number of bounces, what we started to call task tennis, you realize that this is not going back and forth because it's getting done. It's actually going back and forth because it's stuck. And it might be stuck because I'm being a jerk and I just don't really want to do the thing. It might be stuck because the requirements were unclear and we're going back and forth trying to sort out what we actually need to get done. All kinds of different reasons, right? But that data point, when flagged automatically to a project manager to say, hey, project manager, Mark and Jay are working on this thing together and it just doesn't seem to be getting done, you should go take a look. It's not saying something's wrong, but it is that canary in the coal mine early warning detection system that says, historically, when this pattern happens, something's wrong. So you should go and take a look and make sure that nothing's wrong. That's an example of using data about what's happening in an organization, which is what we call ambient data. It exists without anybody having to report it in the organization. And by looking at that ambient data and identifying patterns, you can actually do a pretty good job of diffusing potential future risks. I'm not even suggesting necessarily the level of machine learning and AI, although certainly you could apply this to that. And if you have a decent enough volume of data about what happens in your organization, you might train up a neural net that's pretty good at identifying potential problems based on historical outcomes. But even just some smart business rules here are able to catch that kind of pattern of back and forth more than a certain number of times. Well, and you've used the analogy uh, enterprise orchestration. And even as you're describing this kind of cross-functional, but I also think about, Jay, the cross-office, cross-country, cross-generational, you know, uh, truly orchestrating all the different players, all the different instruments. How does that help a global, and now these days, hybrid organization? Yeah, hybrid is an interesting twist to it because a lot of organizations relied on in-person presence as their orchestration. And so you might have said, well, we don't need to put some of these tools in place because I can just look around the room and see what everybody's working on. Or, you know, we're all gathered together in this room working on this project and we're using sticky post-it notes on the walls right, to check track our progress. <laughs> right, exactly. Just look on the whiteboard. You can see exactly what's left to do, right? And so a lot of that relied on shared physical presence as our means of orchestration. And then COVID forced a decade of digital adoption into a two-year period, actually probably into more like a six-month period at the beginning of the pandemic. And all these things we just collectively had decided weren't viable in digital tools suddenly became viable because we had no choice. And so the idea that most of my day would be taken up with video meetings two years ago would have been impossible, but now it's just an accepted fact of life. And thankfully for my travel schedule, I need to do much less travel than I used to have to do because we also just sort of assumed that some meetings had to happen in person. There was no way we were gonna get our customers to jump on a video call with us. We're gonna to have to fly out and see them whenever we have to see them. So hybrid has changed some of those fundamental assumptions. And I think anytime we have an occasion to go back to first principles and sort of question some of those fundamental assumptions, it gives us a chance to understand where we've maybe lost what I call clarity of purpose. So 
a, a classic example of a loss of clarity of purpose would be the music industry who thought for a long time that they were actually the CD distribution industry. And so they fought strenuously against the idea that anybody might download music online, even legitimately, because they were protecting not the music industry, but the CD distribution industry. Or if you go back a little further, you can see that railroads were thinking, were lost in the thought that they were railroad companies rather than transportation companies. And if they had understood that their business was to transport goods, they might have adopted trucking as a natural extension of the railroad, but instead they fought strenuously against it because to them that was a lack of clarity of purpose. They thought they were railroads, not transportation companies. So anytime we have a forcing event that says go back to first principles, we have an opportunity to revisit why do we do this thing? And so hybrid's given us a chance to all collectively think, well, actually, I shouldn't say all. I think a lot of businesses out there and probably some of the listeners here work for these companies. They probably don't lead them, given the fact that they're listening to this podcast, but they are not going back to first principles. They are trying to go back to what happened before the pandemic. How are we going to get everybody back in our office is the thought process that they're having, which is a mistake. This is a chance to revisit why do we have an office? And that's not to say we shouldn't have one, but what types of activities are better done in person in an office versus the ones that we might do online and that we might orchestrate more effectively through digital tools with a happier, more engaged workforce who don't have to spend two hours a day commuting to an office. They can work from home and have a much happier life three days a week or whatever the number of days is, right? That's right. So orchestration, is really about getting a symphony of your best players playing together from that shared songbook. And it can apply to really any kind of work, a highly performing development team, which may be using an agile scrum methodology and tracking their work in JIRA can get to that level of orchestration where they're just all performing really effortlessly together in sync. You can also apply that to non-agile dev teams and you can get to things like Maybe you are part of a transformation in your organization and you have a transformation management office. That's a great example of where you deeply need orchestration because by definition, that transformation management office is cross silo. It has a mandate of affecting change across a lot of different disciplines, often different offices and geographies, depending on the scale and scope of the company. It has to fundamentally change some ways of working, right? The, ways of working that caused the need for the transformation can't be the ways of working that resolve the transformation by definition. So you have to change how the organization works. You probably have to look at new tools and platforms. And the need to orchestrate across that effort is many of the things you said. It's people in different silos across different teams, different geographies, different time zones, different levels within the organization, junior folks who have just joined versus maybe more senior folks who are in the C-suite or leadership roles. And you need to get everybody sharing that same single view of where we are in real time. So we spend as little effort as possible on status reporting and we automate as much of that process as possible. You need to ensure governance standards get met across the organization, what we call an active governance model. So we are not just recording what happened, but also actively ensuring that we're staying adherent to our governance criteria. And you have a whole lot of data that you have to report on, and you want to do that in as automated a fashion as possible so that you are de-risking the transformation that you're, you're part of. If you look at the data of transformations and there's lots of data out there about the success rate of them, but it 
generally holds pretty close to 70% fail and 30% succeed. And batting 300 is okay if you're in baseball, but that's about the only place where it's acceptable. <laughs> Anywhere else, a 30% success rate is pretty terrible. It's pretty we rough. are talking about, you know, if we look across industry, we're talking about tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars on the line here that we are going to fail to deliver at least some amount of those benefits in 70% of cases. So orchestration is the answer to how do you move from the 70% of transformations that fail to the 30% that are successful. And there's a couple of key things that those 30% do. They're very effective at defining the metrics for success and then measuring them in real time with a single view of that truth. They're very effective at a culture of transformation that is supported through the ways of working and through the tools that they use. And they're very clear that transformation is disruptive because in many cases, transformation is now a buzzword that gets used when we are saying, you know, our version of our server software is a little out of date, but no one's going to give us funding if we say we need to upgrade the server software. But if we call it a digital transformation, then it'll get funded. Yeah. And now we can deliver our digital transformation. So you may be successful at that, but it's not transformative. But it's not, it's not really an upgrade is not a transformation. Yeah, exactly. Love it. Love exactly. It. Well, my guest has been uh, Jay Goldman. And Jay, before we go, I, I want to make sure I understand and uh, share your own creative process and your own creative journey. We've been talking about transforming organizations, but you've been developing these ideas in an entrepreneurial and intrapreneurial way uh, for many, many, many years. I have, yeah. Uh, I had the very good fortune of joining an organization called Click Health, K-L-I-C-K, uh, back in 2010. Um, Click was about 130 people when I joined, and today it's about 1,700. So Click has grown very, very aggressively over that time. Uh, 30 to 40% year-over-year growth pretty much for its entire history. Click is a commercialization partner for life science companies. So working with primarily biotech and pharma companies to bring life-saving therapies and life-changing therapies to market. Uh, really, you could sort of think of Click as a marketing agency. It's probably the closest analog, but really at heart, Click is a technology company and always has been. And so when I joined in, in back in 2010, there was already uh, an early version of a platform in place internally called Genome, which the co-founders of Click have been building since Click was born. And we took Genome together and continued to evolve it quite rapidly toward sort of a complete enterprise operating system. How do you track all the data and manage all the data about an agency being successful at what it does? And in that, we learned lots of things by analyzing all that data, ultimately led us to write The Decoded Company, which came out in 2014. And our hypothesis in writing it really was simply we share the story about how we've built this place and the kind of culture and data-driven approach we have, people will want to come and work here. And so we were sort of right about that. We did definitely get some people who read the book and then applied. But the really unexpected part that was such a, a, a pleasure for us and such an awesome opportunity is it became a New York Times bestseller. Uh, big surprise to us, but we happened to have written a book about big data and culture and talent-centric workplaces right at the moment where those two things as trends intersected. And it just was lucky for us that they did and we were in the right place at the right time. And so because of that, we got a chance to go on a global speaking tour and we got to speak all over the world 
I spoke at places like NASA and TEDx and uh, Harvard Business School and a whole bunch of Google's offices around the world. And everywhere that we gave that talk, when we came off stage, there was a lineup of people who wanted to know where they could buy Genome. And it wasn't for sale. It was just a, it was a proprietary platform that we built for ourselves. And so we realized very quickly as entrepreneurs that there's obviously an unmet market need here. And so we started to think about commercializing this. And then we got kind of forced into it by our first ever customer, a guy by the name of Matt Ishbia, who is the CEO of a company in the US called UWM, United Wholesale Mortgage. Today, they are the second largest lender in the US, almost 10,000 people. At the time, they were about 1,200 people. Matt had seen a platform demo of Genome and basically said to us, look, I want this for my company. So either you're going to sell this to me or I'm going to build it myself. <laughs> but if I have to build it myself, then you can never call yourselves entrepreneurs again. And that was like the ultimate challenge to, to some entrepreneurs, right? You mean, yes. oh, we can't give up that part of our identity. I've got to so have the label. We said, <laughs> right. So we said, all right, we'll sell it to you. And we worked out a deal. They actually forced us into a 10 year subscription, which we were happy to give them, but that um, they, they really felt this was gonna be a very successful platform and they wanted to make sure they would have access to it. And so we're at year seven of their 10 year subscription now and still going strong. And uh, Sensei Labs emerged really out of all of that effort at Click to build these platforms for ourselves and then to write decoded as a means to understand what we were doing and what other companies were doing and then commercializing that platform and bringing it to other companies. Today, our, our conductor platform is used by Fortune 500 and 1,000 corporations all over the world to orchestrate their most critical programs. It's used by government agencies, large professional service firms to enable delivery out to their clients. So it's been quite a journey. That's a great story. And it really pays off what we started about, and that is this inside out thinking, that if you really understand the customer's inside, and then listen to the experiences of customers outside, uh, you can make hay on that. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Jay, how can we uh, find out more about Sensei and uh, learn more about you in the book? You can learn more about Sensei at senseilabs.com, S-E-N-S-E-I labs.com. You can uh, also learn more about the book there. You can follow me on pretty much any social network as at Jay Goldman, J-A-Y and uh, certainly find more about Sensei on LinkedIn. We publish lots of great content on there as well. Very good. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on the show, Jay. My pleasure, Mark. It's been a great conversation. And I think, we, you know, as we started, we really started thinking about big data as a key to unlock creativity. And I think we understand that a lot better now. So I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And listeners, this is just one example. I mean, we're, we're approaching episode 200 of the podcast, 100,000 downloads. So that's a lot of creative stories from singer songwriters to fine artists, to museum curators, to authors and entrepreneurs like Jay today. But everyone has shared with us a tool and approach, but also a can-do attitude and a resilience, and most of all, the connections and that's what I think is so fascinating about the conversations we have on the podcast. So continue to listen to us. Come back again for our next episode. We'll talk about, of course, what inspires ideas and thinking, but most of all, gaining the confidence and the connections to get our work out into the world. So until next time, I'm Mark Stenson, and we're unlocking your world of creativity. We'll see you soon. 
Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and thepeaceroom.love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only $0.99. Cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer.